Well, thank you, Chuck, for uh, leading us. I do trust that we've enjoyed singing God's praises today and that you, you feel encouraged for a, a week ahead. Before we uh, turn to our subject matter tonight, I do just want to say, is that not a, an amazing sight? Apparently they're not just called yellow jobbies, they're called Jerusalem artichokes. You know, Mark and I might be happy just to call them those yellow flowers. But uh, am I right in saying they're Jerusalem artichokes? Is that right? Is that, are they part of the daisy family? Or am I trying to be too clever for my own good now? They look like they're sort of adult daisies, don't they? Just yellow flowers, I think that's the best. Um, but lovely that uh, a ministry like that can really help us to, to worship God and just be thankful to God for what he's given us. Well, let's give thanks uh, now and pray for God's blessing. Lord, thank you that we can turn our attention from the means of grace in terms of song, giving praise to you in song. We thank you for the means of grace that come as we... Um, read your word. Thank you for the public reading of your word and this historic friendship that was under your control in terms of the strange dynamics of jealousy and insecurity between Saul and then David and Jonathan, all, of course, orchestrated through your sovereign hand. And now as we turn our attention so briefly at the end of this Lord's Day to your word, won't you help us to know you better and love you more as a result? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a church, you are well aware that we've had ample opportunity over the years to uh, reinforce uh, in our minds and consciences, and I appreciated what you said this morning, Maurice, about uh, being reminded that we that we are constantly having truth massaged into our consciences, but this spiritual reality that it is a vitally important a vitally important thing to be able to, uh, with didactic, doxological, and devotional clarity and conviction, be able to answer the question: What is the God of the Bible like? It's a very important question to answer. And very few people will come at you with the question as blatantly as that. But essentially that's what people are asking. Um, what is the God of the Bible like? Now, not just in this evening series on the attributes of God, but generally in our God-centered and our word-focused approach to life and ministry, this point has been repeatedly highlighted that we need to know God from his word. We don't want to know God of our own making. We don't want to conceive of God in our own particular way. We want to know the God of the Bible. How has he revealed himself in scripture? And if you were with us last week, you'll recall that we spoke of the sovereignty of God. And it's a, it's a difficult doctrine, and it's a doctrine that needs to be thought through. It's a doctrine that, that has many, many tentacles, the fact that God is uh, supremely powerful and that he's absolutely in control of every single thing, 
There isn't a rogue molecule in the world. There's, there's no grains of dust that are being blown by the wind in a haphazard way. God is in control of every single thing. Not simply the big things, but everything. He's working out all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. That was last week. But this evening we want to link what we discussed last week with what we need to discuss this evening. And now let me, let me put it to you this way. I want to, I want to launch from this launching pad how good it is to know that God has no less power and control over himself than he has over his creatures. God has no less power and control over himself as he has over his creatures. So what we are talking about this evening is one of God's communicable attributes. Someone who's been involved in teaching through the series that mentioned it, it may, may have been Voter, he got all technical with us and he mentioned that the attributes of God can be um, and have traditionally been put into two categories. There are the communicable attributes, those that, that God has that he can also give to us. And there are the non-communicable attributes that only God has, such as his omnipresence and his omniscience. Only God will ever, ever be those things. But there are things that are communicable. God can give them to us. He has them. They are describing words, adjectives for him, and they can also describe us. And the attribute that we have uh, under the microscope tonight is the issue of patience, the patience of God. You can immediately see that that is a communicable attribute because God can make us patient. It's also one of the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5.22, that those who are filled with the Spirit of Christ are, amongst other things, patient, hopefully increasingly patient. You just pause for a moment and you think of the social and relational value of patience. I mean, imagine being married to an impatient person. It would make, very, it would make marriage very painful, wouldn't it? It's a lovely thing to think of the friendship between David and Jonathan and to think of what role patience played in that relationship over time. It's a lovely thing in terms of same-sex friendship, male and male, women with their women friends, but in relationship between husband and wife and parents and children. It's just lovely to know that we can be patient with one another. It's a lovely thing. You know it when it's absent. What are the, what are the words that describe something other than patience? Words like impatience, irritation, that snappiness where you're just biting each other's heads off. Sarcasm, aggression, judgmentalism, agitation, frustration. I mean... There's a lot of that around anyway, isn't there? Even in friendship, even in marriage. But thankfully it doesn't last long and often we, we can repent of these things and we can, we can make up and be reconciled. Forgive me for being sarcastic with you. I didn't mean to. 
What are the synonyms for patience? Well, you start relating this back to God now. What are some other words to describe patience? And you think of not only our patience and the patience of someone that you really admire and appreciate, but when you think of God, think of God's composure. Think of his restraint. Think of his tolerance and his self-control. Think of his calmness and his forbearance and his long-suffering. The idea of serenity and resistance to provocation are very much on the table tonight. So, let's put all of this together. When you think of Exodus 34, verse 6, I'm going to mention a number of passages. I'll I'll take you to one particular passage right at the end, but let me just take your minds back to Exodus 34, verse 6. Because in Exodus 34, verse 6, we receive words that God himself expressed to Moses after the golden calf incident. You'll remember that situation when Moses had been up the mountain, the very scene that we're part of in our Exodus series so far. Moses is up the mountain and he's receiving the, the, uh, the stone tablets from God. And God says, go down because the people are up to nonsense. And he comes down and he sees what they're up to and he, he throws the two tablets uh, of stone, the Ten Commandments, and breaks them. Of course, a very, a very uh, uh, graphic illustration of, of the reality. Um, but then the Lord descends in a cloud and he stands with Moses and he proclaims the name of the Lord, and he passes before Moses, and God himself says this about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But then God goes on to say, after having described himself using those phrases, he goes on to say that he will by no means clear the guilty. Not surprisingly, we then read that Moses quickly bowed his head to the ground and worshipped. So God has given a description of himself in the context of gross sin, incredible sin, in the context of huge disappointment, The two tablets of stone are broken, brand new, but the Ten Commandments recently received have been transgressed. And here is God describing himself as one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But come with me from that Exodus 34 scene to a scene that Marius mentioned this morning in Numbers chapter 14, where we read in verses 17 and 18, again, the context is the people's rebellion. What is their rebellion? Well, if you recall the scene that Marius described this morning, the 12 spies had gone in to spy out the land. They'd come back, and 10 had given a negative uh, report, and 2 had given a positive report. And when the people rebel and they say that they're not going to go into the land, they buy the, the, uh, the negative report of the ten spies. God wants to 
destroy the people. And Moses intercedes. And Moses says, don't do that. Don't do that. Make your power great. And what he really means in the context there is, with reference to yourself, exercise your power. Restrain yourself. Don't wipe your people out as you intend to, as you would be justified in doing. And then Moses says to God, he reminds him, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And so really Moses appeals to God, and you think of of the, the courage this must have taken and the strength of character and personality for Moses to appeal to God that he exercise his power over himself. God, restrain yourself. You're justified in being angry, and you're clearly very angry. You want to wipe these people out. But please don't do that. Because the nations amongst whom we are going to have some dealings are going to know that you brought these people out of Egypt, and you weren't somehow able to take them all the way into the promised land. This is not going to reflect well on you. So please restrain yourself, God. And he makes a repeated reference to mercy. But here's the point with reference to patience. That mercy is the outflow of patience. As God restrains himself, as God holds himself in, in his patience, he's able to be merciful. It's a precious thought. And we'll discuss that a bit further. But you'd be interested to know Psalm 86 verse 15. Those words that describe God are repeated. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103 verse 8. Those very words repeated again regarding the mercy and the grace and the slowness to anger that we find in God. Psalm 145 verse 8. That same series of thoughts and words. The prophet Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 9 verse 17, is aware that God is ready to forgive. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So the psalmist picks up on this theme. The prophet picks up on this theme. Because this is a very real thing. The God of the Bible is merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now in Romans, moving now from the Old Testament to the New Testament, in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul raises the issue of presumption, one of the themes that Marius raised this morning. And Paul asks the question, of the Roman Christians, do you presume upon the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So Paul's really saying, don't you realize that God holds himself back from destroying you to kindly afford you the maximum opportunity to come to repentance? Can't you connect the dots? Can't you see that God's Self-control is there for a gracious purpose, a merciful purpose. 
And these interesting dynamics of interplay between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility also come to the fore when we consider Paul's explanation in Romans chapter 9. So the patience of God is mentioned in Romans chapter 2, but in Romans chapter 9, at verse 22, Paul asks the question, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And in fact, there's an issue that Marius has left untouched so far in the book of Jude. He pointed back again this morning, he hinted at it in verse 4 of Jude. But here's some personal homework as you wrestle with this issue of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Go back and identify in Jude verse 4 and in Romans 9.22 this issue of vessels prepared for wrath. God makes some people for wrath. That's a, that's a hard doctrine, but it's clear in Scripture. It's clear in Scripture. And every Christian, in every culture, in every situation, in every time, has got to somehow work with this truth. But we see it clearly in Jude 4. We see it clearly in Romans 9.22. But that's an aside point. The fact, the fact of the matter is that Paul asks the question, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? For what purpose? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Deep issues, admittedly. But the patience of God is in the picture. Now finally, by way of scriptural proof regarding the patience of God, let's move from the Apostle Paul to the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 3 verse 20 refers to God's patience in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. God wanted to destroy the earth, but in patience he restrained himself and he waited 120 years while Noah was building the ark before he sent the destructive deluge to kill everyone except eight. The patience of God. But this is where we now finally turn to our Bibles. Second Peter chapter 3. Because that reference to the patience of God was in 1 Peter 3. But if you go to 2 Peter 3, the patience of God comes into focus again. 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are due to be, due, are, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Then verses 14 and 15. Therefore, beloved, since we are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. It's an echo of this morning, isn't it? And at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him. Count the patience of God as salvation. As God holds himself in, as God restrains himself from giving us what we deserve, out of that flows his mercy, which allows sinners like you and I to be forgiven. That's an incredible truth. And as we bring this to a close and put some application flesh on the bones, let me read a couple of statements to you that I found so helpful. I do want to say to you that as you study the attributes of God, and we've been using four or five different books, it's very interesting how few of the books actually deal with the patience of God. If you look at a a book dealing with the attributes of God, Not all of them deal with the patience of God. Many of them somehow subsume the idea of patience into the chapter on the mercy of God. But it's only A.W. Pink, who is very direct as only A.W. Pink can be, and says it's it's not just that we put these two concepts of patience and mercy together. They are two separate things. And so he says things like this. He says, The link between patience and mercy is the display of God's mercy in his patience. God is slow to anger. Mercy respects the creature as miserable, whilst patience respects the creature as criminal. Mercy pities him in his misery, whilst patience bears with the sin which engendered, caused, or led to the misery and is giving birth to more. So you see how as God holds himself in, in his patience, he lets his mercy flow. Patience is that power of control which God exercises over himself, causing him to bear with the wicked and forbear so long in punishing. God has no less power over himself than over his creatures. It's a wonderful thought. It really is. To think of God's sovereignty out in the world, but God is sovereign over himself as well. As he's able to control everything out there, he's able to control everything in here as well. That certainly was a novel thought for me as I contemplated this attribute. God's mercy terminates upon the creature, but God's patience terminates upon himself. The patience of God 
is that excellency that causes him to sustain great injuries and insults without immediately avenging himself. Aren't you pleased that the God of the Bible is a patient God? He's not only merciful, he's patient. Don't lump those two together because I think, as A.W. Pink says, you're losing something in appreciating who God really is. Appreciate him first as a patient God and then appreciate him as a merciful God. He's able to be merciful because he's patient. He's able to restrain himself so that he can be merciful. A lovely thought. God's patience is his willingness to defer and delay pouring forth his wrath upon deserving sinners. God's goodness sets him to be patient. And this patience sets many sinners to run into God's arms of mercy. It's interesting, in the providence of God, you and I were speaking the same language. Because God was not patient with the angels who rebelled. For the sake of time, Marius didn't make a big thing of that this morning. But a lot can be said and probably should be said as we appreciate the fact that God doesn't owe sinners any grace at all. And the fact that he's chosen to send a savior for sinners like us is made all the more amazing by the fact that he did not choose to send a savior for the angels who rebelled. He's left them in judgment. Incredible thought. Christ took on human flesh in order to save the seed of Abraham, a response to our sin which he did not display toward the rebellious angels. And then to think as you appreciate this reality of Christ, that conformity to Christ will result in greater patience in us. And at this point I want to close by reading Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Let's pray together. Lord, we do want to thank you for the fact that we can ask this question, that we can even be interested in asking such a question. What is the God of the Bible like? And thank you that in answering the question, we do need to put onto the table, we do need to feed into the conversation this list of words that describe you, this list of realities that you display in this world, you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we do want to thank you for this concept of your patience, your forbearance, your willingness to restrain yourself. You could justly wipe us out, but you hold yourself in, and you forbear, and you wait as you send the means of grace as you send the gospel, as you send those who preach truth, you allow people to hear truth, and in the hearing of truth, faith is created. We thank you for your patience.
which gives rise to your mercy. Thank you for the way that you've treated us as sinners. You did not choose to treat the angels who fell that way. So receive our thanks tonight, and we do want to pray, Holy Spirit, that having come to Christ, having put our faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would fill us, O Spirit of Christ, and that you would make us, that you would give us this communicable attribute in greater and greater measure. Make us patient with one another. Make us patient, O God, we pray. We appreciate your patience, and we want to reflect it in this world. Help us to do that for the glory and honor of your name. Amen. Amen.